my name's Caleb, uh, and I am the pastor for college and young adults here. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and I'm really excited to open God's Word with you all this morning. We have a, a lengthy and weighty section of the gospel according to Matthew uh, to look at this morning. And if you're new or visiting our church, we are so glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, but to catch you up a little bit, we have been studying the, the book of Matthew for quite some time now, uh, and we're getting close to the end. Uh, and we are currently right in the middle of a drama happening between Jesus and the religious leaders and elite in Jerusalem. We're going to get right into it. Our passage this morning is on the longer side, so I invite you to remain seated But please still honor the reading of God's word. So read with me. This is Matthew chapter 22, uh, and we're going to start in verse 15. Make sure I have my uh, my clicker ready. It says this. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us, and the first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. And the same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. 
One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The word of the Lord. Well, as silly as it is, this passage this week reminded me of two of my favorite childhood cartoons. Tom and Jerry and Wiley the Coyote and the Roadrunner. Right? Some famous rivals, adversaries, nemesis. You know, and you kind of, after you watch it a while, like, didn't you kind of want just like one time for the anvil to get the roadrunner? Right? But it just never does. Well, have any of you ever had a nemesis or a relationship like that? Not a real nemesis, right? That's like pretty dark and intense. Uh, But, you know, someone that you just really want to beat at something, but just never seem to be able to. I have a nemesis like that, and he might be here right now. It's possible. So for anonymity, we're going to call him Sir Bikes-a-Lot, okay? And Sir Bikes-a-Lot and myself, we ride bikes together quite a bit. And most of the time when we go on bike rides, uh, we ride up hills because we, we really like uh, pain, evidently. But we ride up roads like Old San Marcos or Gibraltar Road, and... It always starts out friendly. We're chatting, we're having a good time, we're enjoying the beauty of Santa Barbara. But inevitably, at some point, it gets competitive. And we just want to beat each other to the top of the hill. And so I try and I try and I try and I fail and I fail and I fail to beat this friend on climbs. And let me tell you, I am so tired of seeing his spandex-clad bottom just riding away from me. (laughs) Right? I just, I want to beat him so bad, and I never seem to be able to. But in the end, in reality, he's one of my best friends, and it's just a friendly rivalry. This is not at all the dynamic we're going to see today between the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Jesus. They truly have ill will towards Jesus. And their hope is to have him arrested and executed as promptly as they are able. We need not to miss this. These are not well-intended, curious questions. These are, as the text points out, traps laid before Jesus. And they hope to catch him so they can get rid of him. So first up, we have... A question from the Pharisees. We see in verse 15, they purposely make plans to try to trap him in their words. And their plan goes something like this. They send their disciples and the Herodians, which is a classic move, right? To send your friends to go ask a question that maybe you're a little afraid to ask. My high school friends know exactly what I'm talking about. And so they send them to ask whether it's right to pay the imperial tax or not. And we might think to ourselves, well, how 
is this a trap? How has this put Jesus in a hard situation? And to understand this a little bit better, I want to introduce you to someone named Judas of Galilee. Uh, This is not Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, but a political radical uh, who led a failed resistance movement against the Roman Empire about 25 years before our story today. The mainstay of his resistance was getting the people of Judea not to register for the imperial census tax imposed on them by Rome. First and most simple, well, Sorry, back up. The Jewish people had more than one reason to oppose this tax, both patriotic and religious. So first and most simply, uh, the tax was imposed on them by a foreign power just for existing. They had to pay it just for being part of this Roman province. And second, uh, it was paid using a silver denarius, uh, which had the graven image of Caesar on it and had an inscription that deified Caesar, that made him to sound like God. And so for some, using this coin was interpreted as a type of idolatry. Uh, Ultimately, Judas was killed, uh, and his followers were scattered, but his influence and ideology uh, remained strong among many patriotic Jews. And in fact, uh, he's credited with starting uh, what some of you may have heard of as like the Zealot Movement, Uh, of this era, Uh, or yeah, more specific than that. But the Pharisees thus believe they have put Jesus in somewhat of an impossible situation. And here's the situation. If he says they shouldn't pay the tax, he would remain popular in the people's eyes, but would certainly be in trouble with the Roman authorities. Thus, Jesus of Galilee would end up like Judas of Galilee. But if he said they should pay the poll tax, while he would avoid trouble with Rome, he would lose popularity and credibility with the people. Jesus, however, recognizes the trap for what it is. He exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and provides a framework for living under the rule of the kingdoms of this world without compromising our fidelity to God. Jesus is pretty cool. So let's look at verse 19. Jesus asked them to show him the coin, which is still up on the screen, used to pay the tax, a silver denarius. It could be that Jesus is asking them to show him this because he didn't have one. Uh, It would be similar to having like a $100 bill on you. Uh, It's not a small amount of money. But I think more importantly, it reveals the Pharisees' hypocritical position. They are trying to make Jesus look bad by getting him to say that they should pay the tax, and yet it is clear that they use the very currency at the heart of the matter. They're trying to trap him in something that they themselves are participating in. Let's keep looking. The famous line that many of you have probably heard is, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, And to God, what is God? God's. In this context, I think, actually, the Caesar part is quite clear. Jesus did not object to people paying this imperial poll tax. But as highlighted in his previous exchanges with the chief priests and Pharisees, he does object to them not giving back to God what is God's. 
And the question we have to ask then is what belongs to God? What do we need to give back to God? What bears God's image and inscription? This will become no longer a rhetorical question, but what do we owe to God? Our lives, ourselves? Yeah, the answer is us, our entire existence. And so we see that Jesus' answer is that you can give Caesar your money, but not your worship. Caesar can have his coins, but not your devotion. And for all of us following Jesus, no matter what governing authority we live under, we need to get the order of our allegiances right. One of the very interesting things about trying to apply this passage for our context is that we find ourselves in a very different national and political situation than Jesus and his audience. Think, think about the people hearing this. Many of them... Uh, thought that giving any sort of allegiance or cooperation to the Roman Empire was tantamount to infidelity to God and that paying this tax was a form of idolatry. And while it has maybe gotten more complicated for us in recent history, that's just not what it's like where we live. American Christians have generally been much more comfortable with things like pledging our allegiance to our country and having our national and Christian identities overlap in a variety of ways. And in light of this, I think the reminder for the church is to keep in focus that no matter what kingdom or empire or nation we live in, our allegiance and faithfulness to God and the way of Jesus supersedes our allegiance to any human authority. Where the two find alignment, we should praise God. But only while remembering that our pledge to King Jesus is more important than any human institution. All right, let's keep going. Marriage and the resurrection. So having adequately silenced the Pharisees for the time being, next up is the Sadducees. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the Sadducees, they were a small but influential group of Jews who had a peculiar set of theological beliefs. Uh, The important one for today's purpose is that they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, which our text tells us. Uh, And their question is not so much designed to get Jesus in political or legal trouble, uh, but instead seems to more be about making him look foolish. Uh, Unfortunately for them, Jesus is no fool. Uh, Their question revolves around a law that aimed to protect families and specifically widows uh, in the case of the untimely death of a husband. The hypothetical question involves a woman who marries a man, go away fly, uh, who then dies without an heir. And so his brother marries her in accordance with this Mosaic law. And this then happens six more times so that in the end, she has been married to all seven brothers. And then she dies. It's, it's kind of a, a dark hypothetical situation they've constructed here. Um, the question then is, at the resurrection, the so-called resurrection, whose wife will she be? And they think they have him trapped. 
Their question reeks of intellectual arrogance. They are certain that their logic and reasoning is sound, and they believe their question will surely leave Jesus confounded and looking silly for believing in something as unreasonable as the resurrection. But again, Jesus is no fool. Look at Jesus' response in verse 29. He says, you are so, so stupid. (laughs) No, he doesn't really say that. And kids don't say that either. Benji did say I could say that word though. So I got permission. (laughs) No, he says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God, which I think in Jesus' talk is pretty close to what I said. His answer to them is that their question is flawed because they have missed the entire point of the scriptures and have completely and utterly underestimated the power of God. Jesus' resurrection is not only the culmination of all of the scriptures, including the Torah, but is also the event on which the hope of the world hinges upon. It is the power of God on display showing the promise of redemption and new life for the entire created order. They only ask this question because they lack the understanding and faith required to believe that God has the power and creativity to do something new that will completely restructure the entire framework of how they understand their existence. And I must admit that this is also hard for me. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around this at times. So let's look at the example. For many of us, marriage is a really important part of what our life looks like right now. And so it can be a challenge to try to imagine what that's going to look like if that's no longer the case. And the best I've been able to understand this is from an analogy that I'm going to steal from a pastor named Tim Mackey. And it's a great thing about being a pastor. We get to steal things from each other all the time. Um, Well, in John chapter three, this is kind of the analogy he uses. Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order to inherit eternal life, one must be born again. And Mackey uses an analogy from our first birth to try and explain this aspect of our rebirth. So, this is my son, Moses. Uh, He's one year old, and he is very cute and very naughty. No, he's, he's not really. He's too young, really, to be. But when Moses was still in uh, Marie's womb, when he was still uh, in utero, he had lungs, believe it or not, which is crazy to think about. Uh, he had lungs, but they weren't full of oxygen, does anyone know what they were full of? Yeah, some, some sort of liquid that I don't know exactly what it is. But liquid, not air. And he didn't breathe with his lungs. Do you know how he got oxygen? Through the umbilical cord, which I have a really hard time saying. Okay, so he has lungs. They're full of liquid. He doesn't use those lungs to breathe yet. Instead, he breathes through his umbilical cord. When Moses was still in Marie's womb, he had absolutely no framework 
that when he was born, two of the first things that were going to happen was that he was going to breathe air into his lungs, which I can't imagine for the first time feels that great, but he was going to breathe air, and then good old dad was going to cut his umbilical cord from his body, which had been the only source of life he had up until this point. He just didn't have a framework for what was going to happen at the time of his birth. And in the same way, we may not have the framework to understand what resurrection life will be like. But our hope comes from trusting in God that it will be more than we could hope or dream for. Even if right now we don't really understand what that means. Okay, last part for our time this morning, the greatest commandment. So Jesus has now amazed and astonished with his answers to the Pharisees uh, and to the Sadducees. Uh, But the Pharisees aren't quitters, right? Just like me on my little bicycle, chasing my friend in his spandex shorts. They want another go. They want another try at Jesus. And their question this time is, what is the greatest commandment? What is at the heart of God's law? What is the most important for the people of God? And remember, I don't think their questions were as maybe as sincere as, uh, as I'm making it sound there. But you know what? I'm really glad that they asked Jesus this. Because as his followers, we get to hear from Jesus what he wants us to do more than anything. Look at verse 37. It says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to read that again. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I think a pretty good place to start would be step one. Love God with your entire being. And step two, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm actually not a huge fan of when we, when we try to make uh, living the Christian life or following Jesus into this really simple thing. It's just like, oh, it's so simple. You just blah, blah, blah. Because there are a lot of very important aspects of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I believe that the Christian life is full and rich and complex. And I think that's a good thing. But these two certainly form a nice foundation for us. A foundation from which everything that it means to follow Jesus are built upon. And if we get these wrong, we inevitably are moving in a different direction than Jesus. If we become uncertain of our footing in our discipleship, these should be the first two things that we come back to. And in this order... I think the order is important here. So let's think about this in terms of how, how do we do this? How do we follow these commandments? Well, I don't know 
that there's one right answer, but I can tell you a set of questions that I ask myself when I feel insecure about my own love for God. These are some of the questions. Am I currently putting before myself the goodness, beauty, and splendor of God? Am I placing regular reminders of God's kindness in my routine? Am I pursuing wonder in God's creation? Am I bending my heart towards God through worshiping with the family of God? Am I, regular speaking, am I regularly speaking with God through prayer? Am I regularly listening to God's voice in scripture? How am I prioritizing and committing to stirring and cultivating my love for God? If this is the first and greatest commandment, we shouldn't be passive about following it. The first and greatest commandment? And yet I fear a lot of the time, we hope that loving God is somehow going to happen to us. That we're going to wake up one morning and it's just going to be there. Instead, I think this is something that we have to cultivate and nurture in ourselves. <clears throat> and I must confess that I'm often unimpressed with my own efforts in this regard. And so I say to you, as much as I say to myself, that if this is our greatest commandment, we need to be persistent in making our efforts to follow it worthy of its importance. Okay, last section. First is good. Second is also really important, I think. And that is loving your neighbor as yourself. What a crazy thing to tell people to do. Have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself? I grew up uh, from a very early age hearing this, and I think often uh, hearing it so much, I could become lulled into thinking that it means something like, when I see my neighbor from down the street, I should be kind and polite and respectful. I think that comes woefully short of what we're actually being called to here. I think it's a good thing to do. Don't get me wrong. I think we should be, it's good to be polite and kind and respectful to our neighbors. I just think what Jesus is calling us to is much more intense and much more uncomfortable than that. So I want you to take a moment. Have you ever thought very much about how someone loves themselves? Actually do it. Take, take a moment, maybe detach from what I'm saying for a second, and try to imagine in a mostly normal circumstance, what are the ways that people love themselves? We're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. How do we love ourselves? I think, in general, people will go to pretty great lengths to care for their own needs. Our instincts naturally incline us to keep ourselves safe and fed and to the best that we can comfortable. And generally speaking, if there is something that we want, especially badly, we are usually willing to make it happen, right? But that same drive, that same instinct for, for taking care of our own needs, for getting the things that we want, it doesn't seem to compel us very often 
in the same way for the needs of others. I am, as is kind of sounds ugly, but I am definitely naturally more concerned for my needs than even the needs of my family members. In terms of how much time and space they take up in what I think about and what I want, I generally speaking am more concerned for myself than even people that I dearly love. But it is this kind of self-love that I believe we are supposed to extend to our neighbors, to care about their needs as we would care about our own needs, to respond to their pain how we would respond to our own pain, to forgive their shortcomings in the same way that we hope others will forgive our shortcomings. But that sounds real hard to me. I don't know if it sounds hard to you. And I think, I believe this kind of love is actually only possible if we have experienced the same kind of undeserved self-sacrificial love from another. The, kind, the motivation for loving someone in this way is having been loved in this way before, having our heart be able to experience what undeserved self-sacrificial love feels like. And every week, when we come to the table and partake in the Lord's Supper, we are remembering and giving thanks that we have received this kind of love from Jesus. That he who had no sin became as sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And then as we go out each week, we have an opportunity to share this love with others that they too might experience this kind of love, this Christ-shaped love. There's a rhythm to that of remembering the love that God has for us and then being able to love in that way to our neighbors. Our hearts become shaped by Jesus so that we can be Jesus to our neighbors. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to come and we're going to remember and celebrate this great love that God has for us, that he showed to us on the cross, that he gave himself for us so that we might be reconciled to God. And we're going to worship. And it's an opportunity to pursue and practice loving God, to sing loudly, even if we can't sing very good like me, to worship with our family because it will help us to cultivate and nurture a love for God, to follow his greatest commandment and come and remember the love that Jesus has poured out to you so that you can pour it out to the world. So for those of us who call Jesus Lord, come to his table and remember God's great love for you. There will be prayer teams uh, on the right and the left if you would like to pray, uh, receive prayer, but come. Let us worship together.